available and welcome to Take It Black podcast. I'm Jack Lattimore, and for this episode, I'm joined by NITV News' political correspondent, Shani Wellington. Shani, welcome to episode 13, the blackest of the black episodes of Take It Black. Thanks for having me there, Jack. Lucky number 13. Yeah, we're getting up there pretty quick. Um, There was a bit of a spell there when the COVID come on, but we're um, going to roll on now. Back and blacker than ever, ready to get stuck in with some inspirational Aboriginal women. Yeah, you're not wrong there. We've got, in addition to yourself, uh, two guests today. They're in this Zoom room with us right now. It's the first time we've used Zoom for a podcast. Um, So it's good to be able to see our guests, actually. Um, But let's get straight to them. We've got Aileen Aileen Morton-Robertson and Evelyn Quay-Molina. Thank you both for being part of this episode of Take a Black. Thanks for having us. Thanks uh, for inviting me on the show. It's an absolute pleasure and honour, as far as I'm concerned. Both big fans. I'm fans of you both, which makes more sense. Um, firstly, I just want to get to you firstly, uh, Eileen. You are distinguished professor, Morton Robinson, these days. And okay. we've got a hell of a lot to cover just in recent news about yourself. Uh, I wrote up a yarn for NITV News online recently. You may be able to hear the building that's going on out the back <laughs> of my house. Um, I wrote up a, a, a yarn online about your admission to the uh, Global Intellectual Society, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. You were the first Indigenous scholar from outside the US to become a member. And I was hoping you might just be able to tell our listeners first up a little bit about that. The uh, the, the Academy itself basically um, is made up of people that um, have made contributions to humanity. I mean, that's the sort of the basis of of um, membership. It's a rather rigorous process to go through. Like, um, you know, there's um, applications have nominations have to go in. Uh, then it has to be screened by the various groups. So my my nomination went before the uh, sociology uh, people, and then it gets. Uh, approved or denied then it goes to another level then it then then they they vote so to um to actually make it through uh it's pretty amazing uh mind you though I didn't even know I was nominated um so uh you know the you know typical kind of um you know gory thing for me was uh when I got the um notice uh, on the email I thought it was spam um, and, and uh, so I didn't take any notice of it uh, and anyway uh, about what's been about three hours later my son um, you know sent me a, a, a thing on messenger saying mum have you have you read your emails uh, this morning and um, I said uh, yeah he said well did you see that one there from the academy, and I went, yeah, why? He goes, you, you've been made a member. I said, have I? <laughs> he said, yes, you have. I said, oh, I thought it was just spam. 
I didn't really take much notice of it. So that was my kind of, and then I was like, how did this happen? <laughs> you know, like, so um, I was very, very honoured. And um, I think it, one of the things it's sort of, uh, to, you know, it's testimony to is that I guess my work is probably um, probably known more outside of Australia than it than it is within Australia, um, and it um, and really interesting that I was elected by the sociologists, given that the the jobs that I've applied for in sociology, usually they tell me I'm not a sociologist, um, you know, because I haven't done my PhD in sociology, uh, you know basically almost a double major in sociology with first-class honours in sociology from ANU, uh, somehow doesn't um, cut it, but apparently you cannot, you can be a social worker and then do a PhD in sociology and you're deemed to be a sociologist. So um, I, find, I find it, I, you know, it's those, those ironies in, in life, isn't it? You know, you because um, I always consider myself fundamentally to be a sociologist because that's my my training and my qualification um uh, and yet uh, and there I am being admitted to this prestigious you know academy on the basis of my work which is perceived to be sociological <laughs> um anyway so being a member I think I'm about to um uh, be inducted in but they've had to cancel the um the one in october but they're trying to get the members on side so i'm still really quite um i don't really know a lot about what the expectation is but i i do know that um they have these huge zoom events and lots of um you know intellectual exchange so i'm looking forward to being a part of it but also about um one of the good things about it is that you can nominate other um, scholars once you're a member. Gee, I wish I got uh, spam like that in my folder. I'd be looking at it more often. Um, the, you know, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences is such a, a high esteemed group of people with, you know, the the leaders and scholars in their field and to have that recognition you you were speaking a bit of it about it there Eileen when you're in that room what are you feeling and and who are you surrounded by you kind of were talking about not being taken into that sociology field um but what has this brought up on a personal level for you after your long career of, of doing this kind of writing it's a difficult question to answer. If I answered it honestly, I don't do my work for accolades. So I don't seek um, that kind of recognition. Um, and so I was very, I was really overwhelmed, um, you know, to think that in my career um, that that could happen. Um, and you know, I've never been uh, nominated for any of the academies in Australia, um, despite the fact that um, you know here I here I'm recognised by an international, but I'm not recognised. You know, I could have been recognised by the Academy of Social Sciences, or I could have been recognised by the Academy of Humanities. 
um, and in that, um, you know, so I, I guess that's what I was saying, that I think that my my work really, my work is known here, but it's not appreciated in the same way that it is outside of Australia. Why is it? Um, it's probably seen as far more threatening here. Um, and, you know, well, I think when I wrote, uh, you know, I did my, dis- my, did my, you know, talking up to the white woman is actually my dissertation turned into a book. And it was one of the first books on whiteness in Australia. Um, and it, um, it wasn't received well uh, because I think it was just, you know, I was positioned, I guess, as the angry black woman within the context of it. And it, my scholarship wasn't, and, and, that, and people use that to dismiss the scholarship, put it that way. Um, when in actual fact the book is uh, very rigorous and raises some really fundamental questions about um, the way in which, you know, race and whiteness work together in Australia to produce um, racism. It also is a book, I think, that tells us, you know, what I tried to do was to put forward the way in which Aboriginal women see the, the world and how Aboriginal women are oppressed within it. Um, it our lives are not the same as a feminist. That's not to say that, you know, white feminists don't uh, have a right to seek the kinds of justice that they want in terms of uh, the world, but I do think that uh, it's slightly hypocritical to be uh, seeking to improve the lives on the basis of gender when you exclude a particular group of women um, in terms of your analysis and 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 they you know you reduce them more or less to being native informants rather than participants in the discourse. So I feel that um, talking up to the white woman you know was ahead of its time. That's for sure. I can look back now in twenty years and go wow, that was such an intervention. And, uh, but at the time, I, I didn't think that it was. Um, I thought that I was being very engaging intellectually with the field of you know, feminism in Australia. And one of the things, like this, there's a couple of things in the book, like one of the chapters is based on 10 years of Aboriginal women's conferencing and resolutions that nothing was ever done, you know, these reports were given to government and were never acted on. And that that is about, you know, being in a position of powerlessness and when we see all of that kind of pathologising about us as not having aspirations or not basically understanding our context or, you know, we're, we're always lacking um, and yet the evidence is clear that Aboriginal women were very clear about what we considered to be our rights in this country and what we believed that our communities needed. Um, so that's just like one part of the book. Another, you know, one of the other chapters that I uh, was trying to show was that the stolen generation, most of them were not taken as babies. 
right? So the stolen, if you look at all the life writings, you know, 5 through to, you know, 10, 11, and those children had memories, memories of the people that they were taken from and memories of the culture that they were removed from and the way in which they acted within dormitories towards one another was how they exercised their, their notions around kinship towards one another. And that's really clear in those life writings. The other thing that's clear in the writings is that when when children were removed, I mean, everybody wants to talk about how you know, the, the stolen generation were, um, you know, taken and raised by white people, but the reality is the vast majority of kids that were taken were actually being trained to be servants. You know, there, was, there wasn't, you know, when we talk about assimilation, the assimilatory nature of the stolen generations was about producing black servants for white homes, discussion around the stolen generations. You know, we can say that they were there and they were, learnt, they were taught to be servants, but we don't actually sing it out loud that, you know, this was, this was, a, this was the production of black servants in this country for white middle-class homes, of which I might add, no one gave testimony about, did they, in the inquiry? Where were all those white middle-class homes that were serviced by those Aboriginal servants? Where were the testimonies to say, yes, they were taken? Where were, where were, where were, there's, that's, the, that's the big silence in that inquiry, is the middle white people that were stolen from their families. So I, that, came, that to me is there in talking up to the white woman, which people kind of, you know, want to basically relegate to it being only about white feminist fragility. But there's much more in that book about what happened in this country to yeah. Aboriginal women. It is 20 years since it was published, Eileen. Um, you uh -huh. have yep. re-released um, the book with some new content in there uh, from yourself and, and others. Um, uh -huh. I suspect... But currently there is a bit of a trend for, in terms of this book being ahead of its time by 20 years or so, at the moment there are, you see a lot of books around um, uh, race, critical race, uh, theory, um, and the BLM movement obviously um, has had a lot to do with that in the last five years uh, and particularly in the last few weeks. So it's very timely time to have a 20th anniversary. Um, I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions around the book itself uh, when it was released. Um, what was the social climate of that time? Around, was it 2000 that it was released? Yeah, that was the sort of time when reconciliation was gaining traction in Australia around 2000, like there were uh, you know, the, the, the movement had begun um, and in that sense I thought that the reception of the book, you know, might be um, a good thing because it, it had, it, because of that, you know, there's a lot of history that I cover in the book taken up um, for people who are interested in that supposed reconciliation journey. Um, but, of course, people wanted the reconciliation journey. They just didn't want to talk about racism. 
They wanted right. to walk across uh, the bridge. They were okay walking across the bridge, but not having the conversation on the way. That's no, it. no. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we're still trying to have that conversation in this country. Uh, what Black What Black Lives Matter did is was bring um, the deaths to the fore. Um, the way in which you know we there's you know you can look at the way in which Aboriginal people are um, overtly killed or but a lot of it is about neglect right a lot of um, the the way in which we're we're perceived as uh, in terms of the the disregard for us, our humanity, yep, and that comes out in the deaths and cuts you get. You know, a young who's got septicemia, you know, being. Um, Emlyn, I only got your book last night. Look, the first what I've read so far, I've loved particularly this stuff around the um, non-linear timing on country. You know, everyone's responding to that section. It's really interesting. You can't pick in a book what, you know, will resonate with people, but particularly with blackfellas, the non-linear time is mm. something that a lot of people have been talking to me about. I've just finished writing something for Mianjin, which basically is doing what you've written about here, mm. connecting to... Uh, you know, uh, Archie Roach in the 70s and 80s in St Kilda back to the 1940s, St Kilda with Sydney Nolan. Um, so, yeah, I was absorbed into that bit going, I just, yeah, that's right, I did that. That's what I was trying to do. <laughs> um, but I'm looking forward to being getting some time to have a look through the rest of it. But is, that's out now, is it? Is yeah, it? it was out 1st of July. Okay. Um, Ron wandered down to readings and see if I can get some, uh, get a copy. Got the PDF with the password. Every time I go to have a look at it, I've got to remember the password. It's really annoying, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like paper books. Yeah. Eileen, when you wrote the book, was there any Indigenous authors that you were inspired by or that were writing in this space at the time, either locally or internationally? In order to be able to, I guess, write the book, I did draw on the work of Indigenous women and um, it was very inspirational for me to and very, actually I was quite traumatic to read. Uh, I read 22 uh, of the life writings just for the one chapter, 22 books that were written by people who'd been stolen like Arnie Della Walker. So they they were the inspiration. They were, uh, you know, as well as the, the strong women in my community, but, you know, these were books that were absolutely uh, gave you insights into so many things in history, like, you know, the, the policy at the time of the removal, the way in which they were being turned into servants, uh, the abusive nature of um, being posted into, you know, white people's homes. Um, they, they, were, they were a commentary about uh, the racism in Australia. 
Talking Up to the White Woman was the second monograph written by an Aboriginal woman. The first, the first monograph in Australia was Anne Paddle Gray's book. And then so I didn't really necessarily have a great deal of academic texts in Australia. We were just emerging, you know. Like I, was, I think in where I state this, people don't seem to kind of grasp it, but I was number 22 that actually my PhD, right? But 10 of those PhDs were the, in theology. So there was only 12 people that had gone through who actually had their PhDs. And most of them, like I, I, one of them was Arnie Fiesel, Uncle Eric Wilmont. I knew those two people, so I knew that they had their PhDs. People have come identified later that I now know who those other 12 were at the time. So there wasn't a lot of um, publications by Aboriginal scholars at the time in Australia, but there were Aboriginal women who were writing, uh, Pat O'Shea, um, Larissa Berent, um, you know, Bobby Sykes. There were women who, who were putting analysis out there, but uh, they were not necessarily um, uh, known, you know, in that sense. Uh, like Larissa was just a young woman who'd come back from Harvard at the time. Um, you know, Pat O'Shea's... Uh, intellectual work was uh, not kind of really known because a lot of her stuff was seen to be that she was, you know, she was a lawyer, she was a magic, you know, she was in the law. But, you know, Pat Pat's early work was also pivotal. Pat Anderson was also writing. Like there were, um, you know, a small number and I made sure that I utilised their work in the book. So the inspiration really for me was and the Aboriginal women in my community. I come from a very strong uh, community, my, um, and the way in which gender relations can figure here are also different from others places. Like, and I, you know, we all think that we all share the same kind of culture, but it's not until you are in contexts where you understand that you are in actual fact an outsider, you know, and, and, and my awakening in one sense was when I worked for the Central Land Council in um, it was 1986, end of 1986. It was all about the uh, handover of the park uh, to the Mob. So uh, during that time, there was a, a Beat the Grog campaign and, you know, my sister and I were, we were marching with the Walpree, but we were so busy talking to one another and we, we were going down the street. And every so often the, the march would stop, everybody would sit down and then get up and then march, stop, march, stop. And so I kind of thought this is really odd. You know, I, I started to, I thought, why are they Why are they stopping? Well, when I kind of looked, looked around, my sister and I were walking up with the men and all the other women were down the back. And I said to my sister, we're in the wrong place. We need to move. Whereas in my country, men and women walk together. Uh, so it was a, it was a, it was, a, it was, I was like, oh, you know, how can I get this so wrong um, moment? But it was also really um, 
you know, the, the differences between desert mob and, and like I'm salt water, I come from an island, it's it's very much around the canoe culture, it's 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 different. Um so yeah, I mean I um I think that uh that's also the kind of scholarship I, that's kind of what I'm I, I was talking before to the, the other lovely guest about the way in which um there's so much work that we still need to do around our history and we haven't even begun to rewrite the history of this country from our standpoint as Indigenous peoples and also to have those kind of conversations about cultural differences amongst us. Um, and, you know, we, we tend to fall into that homogenising of ourselves you know, when I say that Australia was a multicultural society before any white people got here, it was nations of people. Um, and we had protocols for dealing with one another. Uh, we also had systems of governance which are not understood. Um, so, this, you know, there's a lot of work that I think young, in, in, I mean, I guess now I'm, I'm wanting to say that I'm hoping that in one sense the book inspires young scholars to think more about um, the history that they are the product of, right? Um, you know, uh, I see things on Twitter uh, like um, there was a discussion about, you know, repatriation um, as if that happened in 2000 and I'm looking at it going, you know, those that the fight to repatriate our cultural remains back in this country occurred in around about 1979 and the lead in that was taken by the Foundation for Aboriginal Islander Research Action in Britain. We were going down this road because we knew about the skeletal remains and, and not just the skeletal remains, all the soft tissue stuff that had been taken. Um, and so we began our political campaign but we also started setting up a database and we got to the point where the government realised something had to be done and set up and we became co-opted and institutionalised. So the repatriation became incorporated into the processes of the state, whereas it didn't begin there. It didn't begin with the state. It was, it was our concern to have all of our, our people return to be buried on their country. Uh, that was what drove us. That still drives us into uh, um, one of the first, and this was a paper that I helped put together on the rights of the dead, which was taken up internationally as, as a position to argue for um, in terms of the rights of Indigenous people that are dead. They, they still have rights and their bodies have rights. I don't know if that answers the question, but I seem to digress somewhat. Eileen, you mentioned a little bit about there about young Aboriginal writers coming through and kind of knowing this history and at the time with the re-release of your book and also this kind of bigger conversation about race and statues that um, and racial tensions that Jack mentioned earlier. In terms of access for you know, our mob and the wider community wanting to engage in that conversation, what role do you think that Aboriginal writers are playing for people to learn about our history and learn from your lived experience? How important is that? 
it is really, really important for a whole heap of black fellows to become historians and to write the proper history. I was part of setting up the Native American Indigenous Studies Association, which now has over a thousand Indigenous academics as its members. And we, the task that we set back in uh, 2007, we wanted to create a space where young scholars could come to present their work, but also to a space where we could encourage publishers to come to look at the scholarship, to get uh, people published, to set up like-minded with like-minded. And NASA has seen this um, amazing proliferation of, of publications by young people getting their PhDs and automatically turning them into um, books. And historians are rewriting the history. Um, they are using oral history. They're using whole many different sources to basically um, retell um, the history. You know, the Hawaiians are challenging, you know, the, the, the constructions of the Cook narrative about how he died. You've got the, the famous Lewis Clark expedition now being challenged by Anishinaabe historians. We are not doing that work in this country. And that to me is, is that when we, you know, we talk about our old people dying and libraries go when they die. That's why we have to publish. That's why we have to put this stuff down for the future. Because the question remains, what will it be to be an Indigenous person in Australia in 100 years' time? And what will they know about what we did? What will they know about our cultures? What will they know about our political history? What will they know about our conceptions of our humanity? We live in an age where it's more of an imperative for young scholars to produce, but sadly... When you look at, you know, we have over almost 500 graduates with PhDs now, but we don't have 500 monographs, but, you know, single author books. We don't have 500 books. We have very few people actually turning their PhDs into monographs. The question is why aren't they doing this? You know, and I'm sort of in the, in the you know, tr try to say to people for the legacy or for the future, this is the hard work that we have to do. Amberlyn, your most recent book, uh, published by Magabella Books, um, I only received that last night, but from what I've read, it's doing the same, well, it's doing all the things that I'm interested in doing with my own writing. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah, I mean, I'll say first that, of course, my work builds on all the scholars and all the um, Indigenous storytellers who went before me, and Aileen has been a really big influence on me. I think I've read everything she's ever written, unless I've overlooked an article or something somewhere. Uh, so, uh, and that it's really important to know that work uh, and to continue that work and, and have that sense of what people have been saying. And I think the success at the moment of the 20th anniversary edition of Talking Up to the White Woman where it's been discovered by a whole new generation of readers, speaks both to the incredible power of that work, but also to the fact that we haven't had the systemic change we needed and it still remains uh, a work that, that is of the now. Uh, and so 
What I've done in living on stolen land, I've been, I'm a law academic uh, and I'm a creative writer and I've been working for about 10 years uh, around things to do with anti-racism and cultural competency and Indigenous knowledge and around doing some training with non-Indigenous people about relating respectfully to Indigenous people. So this is really the culmination of that 10 years of me just trying to take a bunch of ideas and write them in the clearest, the most direct and the most accessible form I could, which is why it's written in verse, and, and put them all in a book that I could give people. And the question the book uh, puts at the beginning is it, it says to uh, non-Indigenous people in this country, it says to, to settlers, you are, living on you are living on stolen land, what can you do about it? And I really wrote the book for all the people who asked me that question. The title is Stolen Land, but ostensibly it's just equally about sovereignty. For our listeners, when we talk about sovereignty, what are we talking about? Well, one of the things I talk about in Living on Stolen Land is that there's a big difference between what whitefellas think sovereignty is and what blackfellas think it is. Uh, so sovereignty under the system of law that uh, the English settlers bought here was something you could get by taking someone else's land, by claiming someone else's land. Uh, and doing so on the basis that the people who were already there were less than. So this idea that Indigenous people are less than is literally built into the claim to the land and the settler right to belong, which is why it forms a fundamental basis for how to sit. In Indigenous systems, I write about our sovereignties as narrative sovereignties, sovereignties that are based in stories, and those stories come from the ancestors and tell us how to live in a way that sustains all life. And we demonstrate our sovereignty through knowing those stories and through knowing how to look after our country in, in a sustainable and nurturing way. Uh, Amberlyn, you, you said there that you tried to do it in such a clear way and it is written so succinctly but covering, you know, topics like colonialism, sovereignty, humility, those kind of such big, big things for people to try to grasp. What was that process like trying to reduce them so people would understand them when they're reading it? I actually didn't find the process too hard, mostly I think because this is things I've been working on for so long. You know, so at the point at which I was writing it, I've been doing this kind of work for so long that I knew what I wanted to say. But I also think, and this is something I was having a discussion with uh, Keila Reid about actually, uh, that process, the words really just flowed like water. And we were saying that sometimes when that happens, that's like the old people helping you along with something they have an interest in, something they're supporting. And you've, uh, you've written from picture books to young adult books as well. Do you think it's really important to, to engage young people in these kind of topics and in this conversation? It absolutely is, uh, particularly because, at least in my experience, so a lot of the people uh, I encounter who, non-Indigenous people who are looking for information are in their late teens or early 20s and they are still not getting material on Indigenous peoples in a comprehensive way through the education system. So they're still not growing up with that knowledge, which is why books are so important. And, of course, books are so important for our own mob so we can see our own lives reflected in narrative and we can talk, as Aileen was saying, about, well, what are the differences between all our different mobs and what are the different ways we look after our countries? And, oh, look, here's a story about another mob that's come a long way away. How do they live compared to how you live? And Magabella Books play such a huge role in that. Uh, they are the largest publisher of Indigenous books for children and for teenagers in Australia. Without them, we would have hardly any Indigenous children's literature. So their work is so incredibly important and they are an Aboriginal-owned organisation. I'm just wondering around... Um... You said there that it came easily. It's the sort of thing that you've been working on 
for decades. Um, yeah. Also, probably what's you've been carrying around in your head for some time. Um, just recently, with the trend that I alluded to earlier when we were speaking with Eileen around you know this proliferation of books that have come out with titles like uh, Why I'm Not Talking to White People Anymore, um, you know, those sorts of titles, there's, there's a whole heap of them. Um, it must be encouraging, it must be exciting, rather, that this the opportunity that this present moment uh, you know, offers to black writers everywhere to just have an audience for the material that they've been carrying with them for so long. Oh, I think it is really exciting. I will add to that. So Aileen talked about how, we, you know, when she heard that she was in that academy, she thought it was spam. Magabella and I were releasing a book we thought no one would read. Uh, so in, in March, Magabella rang me and said, sure, you want to publish it? It's the time of COVID. People aren't buying books. And I was like, oh, yes, if people will read it, let's publish it. And, of course, between the time we had that conversation and the time it actually got published, there was this sudden surge of interest in Indigenous writing and suddenly lots of people are reading it, uh, which is, is great. Uh, I will say, though, that it is fantastic that there, there is all this interest in Indigenous books. If only publishers had done the work to dismantle the structures of exclusion that have kept Indigenous people out of literature and continue to keep Indigenous people out of literature, if only they had put the systems in place to support Indigenous writers. And it's not from not being told because Indigenous writers were doing this work back in the 80s or before, educating the Australian literary industry on what needs to happen. And there still has not been the systemic change we need to really create those opportunities for Indigenous writers. There is a lot more than there used to be. There's some really good initiatives. There's a lot of goodwill, but the literary industry needs to do the work. Well, overnight, we've seen Tara June Winch pick up. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> a little celebration. <laughs> Which is a massive win, um, but also... And I don't want to be cynical, but I'm going to be cynical. Um, like these books, the type of things that Tara is writing about, the fact that Tara's got other books that are equally as good. There's a whole heap of black writers that have been writing similar subject matter um, at a similar level of you know quality level um, for so long. And um, as you say, it's it's unfortunate that uh, there's not. There hasn't been greater pickup from the industry up until yeah. which I don't know. To me, there's an element of them trying to play catch up around this, which you know I'm okay with. They've got to start somewhere, but um, we should have seen more by this point. We absolutely should have. I don't think there's any question of that. And it's nice that they're interested in works by Indigenous writers now. Uh, but most of them don't have editors who have the expertise to edit an Indigenous text, and there's not that many Indigenous editors. They don't have internal processes that support Indigenous people and create culturally safe spaces. Uh, there, there's nothing. There's really very little in existence. So they have a lot of work to do. And, of course, it just occurred to me that right now we have three contributors to a really popular book that was released a couple of years ago, Growing Up Aboriginal. Um, that book, I think, I got a, a, a check in the mail. It's the first time that's happened. Um, and I think it's it's gone on to um, to Audible. There's an Audible release that's quite popular. 
So there's there's no excuses. There's a, clearly a huge audience out there, an appetite for the sorts of stories that we're telling. Going on from that, Jack, um, Amberlyn, I I don't know how how you do it really because I that experience for me. You know, every day, Jack and I, we kind of work in this news space and the writing style and reporting, for me, it kind of feels a little bit removed. But when I know when I wrote my contribution for Growing Up, it was all very raw. You know, I was writing my own style about the most personal subject matter there is, yourself (laughs) and your lived experience. And I remember it was very confronting for me, a bit cathartic, but also, you know, I felt like I was just serving myself on a silver platter and speaking of all the situations that we've been through. I actually got a rejection letter. They sent me a rejection letter. for the, There was an accident. It was an accident email. <laughs> but <laughs> it was the first time in a long time that I'd actually, you know, poured my heart out. And, you know, and I, I was brushing it off. I was like, this is fine, mum. Like, this is fine. She's like, I'll publish it. Like, don't worry about them. They, You don't need them, blah, blah, blah. And then I got another email where they said, actually, sorry, just, just kidding, just testing your your character there (laughs) (laughs) but you know the when we write about the these really confronting topics and and dealing with trauma and that kind of thing like what's your process for that because I did find with with my experience and writing about myself and growing up aboriginal that you know it, it was a pretty raw thing for someone to go through and you you touch on so many of these topics and have been doing it for decades so what what is that process like Um, I think there's a few things. Firstly, you cannot write about trauma without being re-traumatised, and that's a really important thing to know as a writer. Uh, And it's important to make sure that you are taking care of yourself through that process of writing. Uh, It's important to uh, know that what you say and how you say it is, is up to you. And this is a really important thing for emerging writers who are not working with an Indigenous publisher like Magabella Books, who are working with a mainstream publisher, because often what happens is that editors will push Indigenous people to tell more details about our lives because they're not Indigenous editors. It's not their lived experience. They don't understand the complexities of this and they don't understand what it's like to live with it. One of the things I say in Living on Stolen Land is that words spoken about Indigenous people have a weight and a cost, but if you're not Indigenous, that weight is not a weight that you carry and that cost is not one that you pay. So you have to be really firm and really take care of yourself with your own boundaries about what's right for you. Because I think as Indigenous people, we understand that not every story is to be told, at least not to a wider audience. Some stories are just us. Uh, And then I think you have to think about how it will be read. So the measure and bearing my, a lot of my work is for kids and teenagers. So when you write for kids and teenagers, and particularly if you're an Indigenous writer or you're another marginalised writer and you're writing about difficult topics, The rule is that you judge the book by how it would be read by a person reading it who comes from that group and has that experience. So with Catching Telecrow, which is a book I wrote about Indigenous girls, the measure for that is how would that book be read by Indigenous girls who had been through the trauma I talked about in the book? And that's how you judge where the limits are of of what you should be saying. I had an interesting experience um, just might have even been earlier this year before all of the COVID lockdowns and stuff, um, time seems to uh, have elongated, so it seems further back. 
But um, I wrote something that was to be performed, and it was to be performed in pretty much an all-white space here in Melbourne. Um, and there was other readings on the day. Uh, I was the only Indigenous uh, person performing reading. And um, there was only two or three other Indigenous people in this space um, that were also uh, part of the you know, entertainment that day and they were performing. Um, what I'd written was really, really funny. Like, I laugh. I read it to my <laughs> wife. She laughed. I went in there thinking, this is going to be great. It's going to be, I'll get up there. There'll be laughs all the way through it. Um, I didn't take into account that it was going to be an all-white space. <laughs> the only two people that were laughing were the other two <laughs> in the audience. And as I'm reading, because it was, you know, it was written about um, Cook, uh, Cook stumbling upon the East Coast and then John Oxley coming down through my country and but from the perspective of blackfellas back then that written mm. in contemporary language. Um, and as I'm reading it, and, uh, you know, there's a couple of moments in there where I use cuss words, um, but I'm looking out and just, like, the faces of people, they didn't get it at all. There was no... <laughs> Um, I walked off to silence, apart from, you know, the two cackling. The two blackfellas. Oh, well, lucky there were two blackfellas there. Might yeah. not have been any. Well, afterwards, I went up and I went, was that not funny? They, <laughs> we were, like, cacking ourselves. Went, okay. But to me, it was, like, I. it was a good piece, I thought. I felt, you know, good about it. I was proud that I'd written it, but, you know, that sort of feeling. Um, but I was just really, you know, uh, longing for an audience that would just be in that sort of literary setting, but just all blackfellas that were yeah. sitting there having a good laugh. And I don't think we have those spaces and um, well, not not enough of them anyway. And, and not at the same sort of level uh, in terms of, um, uh, you know, cultural um, prestige afforded to it from the culture industry. Absolutely, yeah. One of the dangers of the um, the literary industry is that the standard's pretty low, frankly. Um, and you know, one of the indicators is that I have word for word exactly the same conversations that were had by Aboriginal writers in the early 1980s. Yeah, so that's an indicator of, of how far back things are. Because the standard's so low, often when people do things that are just like super basic, they think they're doing something that's pretty good. You know, in, in literature, they're like, oh, we've done this great thing. You know, we put an Aboriginal person on a stage somewhere or something like that. And it's like, look, being slightly better than total crap doesn't make you good at something. You know, the, the, the standard is low. You know, this should not be what's happening because so many Aboriginal people have spoken to this for so many years. Uh, and what we need is for literature to start creating culturally safe spaces and hold themselves to that standard of cultural safety. And outside of Aboriginal-owned organisations in literature, I have never encountered a culturally safe. There seems to be a bit of a reckoning in some industries going on at the moment in dealing with that standard. It, are you seeing that happen in literary spaces at the moment? I'm seeing an interest, uh, but still not, and I'm very aware of this because I know this is what has not happened, still not that attention to doing the big work of changing the systems uh, and, and really embedding those processes. So certainly the interest is there. Uh, so let's see how it goes. 
basically. I really don't want the generation of writers that comes after me to be having these same conversations that I've been having that are the same conversations that the generation of writers have. Now, we've got Eileen hopefully still on the line. Uh, there has been some tech difficulties um, across the recording of this episode, but um, I just want to ask you both uh, around uh, the online phenomenon of Karens. For listeners that don't know, this is a term that has been applied to essentially what Eileen wrote about in 2000, middle-class white women. Um, I'm not like absolutely clear on whether all Karens are feminists um, or whether, you know, there's some, you know, the, the trope provides for a broader uh, base for Karenism. But what I've noticed um, is a little bit of pushback from the Karen sector around being labelled Karen. Now, is this something that you guys have noticed? And is this, Eileen, if we still have you um, on the line, is this the sorts of things that you were discussing in Talking Up? <laughs> I, I, I giggle because um, I think that there, there are many forms of Karens, right? And um, Karen uh, presents as the fragile, aggrieved uh, white woman that um, is 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 positions herself as the victim and then takes up the position as bully to deal with you, right? So I don't know if you've seen there's a, well, there was a horrible video of a white woman with a gun at uh, an African-American woman outside a shopping centre who had parked and this woman just came, you know, got out of the car and... Uh, had the gun in the face saying, get away from me, blah, blah, blah. And there was no provocation, nothing. So I think that, that you know, in different forms of that, so you get the, you know, like I guess in, in, in the book or the response to the book there were, and particularly I think if you read the, the chapter that I've actually included at the end about the implications of talking up to the white woman, you can see there's that kind of fragility that there's that victim victim victimhood, um, and then there's the bully, you know, um, that comes out. Uh, Karen, we've always had Karens. Like, I mean, it, it's not. I mean, it's just unfortunate that we call them Karen, um, but you know, that's 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 a label that um, is is now a racial identifier, right? Of, of that particular persona that we see displaying these uh, racist behaviours. And they can be anything from, you know, really wealthy to really poor white uh, women. Um, it, it's, it's not necessarily, and, and what, it, what it speaks to is that the Karen-ness is something that's actually part of the culture, right? You can't have a you can't have a consistent behaviour across a whole heap of sexualities, genders, class, right? You can't have that consistently unless it's actually cultural and systemic. So Karen is in the 21st century due to the wonderful, um, you know, technology behind social media is, 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 
is somebody that's exposed now. But Karens were always in the streets. Karens were in the shopping centres. Karens were on the reserves. Karens were in the churches. Karens were in the schools. Karens were in the hospitals. Like There were Karens. There's always been Karens. It's not a new phenomenon. Um, it's just a phenomenon that we are exposing. That is what is new through social media. So what we're doing is we're bearing witness to Karenness, right, by, and exposing it. That's new. Yeah? But she's always been there. There's that image that I have in my head whenever I see the word Karen of the Baz Luhrmann film Australia with, and I think we used it when I was with Indigenous Sex for something that Amy McGuire wrote. Uh, it's with Nicole Kidman and she's uh, the white uh, pastoralist daughter or wife or something and she's she's holding uh, an Aboriginal kid. Um, and I guess the, the way that the representation is that she's protective of this child. But the way that I see it is like this really insidious type of being embracing this child on a, on a leg. Um, Amelyn, what's your view of Karenism? Yeah, look, I think Aileen has said it really well, you know, and picking up what you were saying, um, a lot of Aileen's book is talking about uh, the role of, of white women in the children's home and in the households, you know, that they ran a lot of the homes and they were running the households in which Aboriginal girls were the black servants. Uh, and Aileen speaks to that really powerfully. Uh, and the internet now is picking up on behaviours that have been around for a long time uh, and that Aileen identified 20 years ago, which is probably why, you know, her book remains so popular 20 years later. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode, unfortunately. Thank you both for joining Take It Black. We had some technical issues, but... I think we uh, we went to spots that were important to get to. Shani, thank you for joining me with uh, on this episode, and hopefully we can get you back uh, more regularly as the co-host for Take It Black. Thanks for having me. I feel like I'm going to start telling my little cousins the ghost stories of Karen's. She's in the supermarket. She's <laughs> in the schools. You better be good. You better watch out. But... Yeah, it's been great and I've learned so much and thank you for coming on and speaking with us and sharing more of your stories that hopefully everyone will go out and read because it's such important and integral reading for us to get stuck into, especially coming from a young Aboriginal woman. Two great books to pick up to read while, well, we're in lockdown. Um, hopefully it won't get too much further around the country. Uh, Grab this episode of Take It Black from all of the usual spots where you find your podcasts. Uh, join us on Twitter with hashtag Take It Black. We've got an account there if you want to throw us a follow. Uh, until next episode, just remember, Take It Black. to reset great minds is a podcast from sbs that guides you through different meditation styles from around the world listen wherever you get your podcasts